This morning's Bible reading is Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in, in vain? The king of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in, in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. How does God deal with the rebellious? One of the great joys of living on college campus is that last few weeks we've been doing a Star Wars marathon. And because what else do you do at a theological college? Um, what's interesting, if you haven't uh, watched any of the Star Wars films, is that it revolves around a conflict between the Jedi and the Sith, or the rebels versus the Galactic Empire. What I found particularly interesting in these films is how the rebels are celebrated and portrayed as heroes. And the viewer is often encouraged to see themselves siding with the rebellious. And this has gotten me thinking about a number of other different films uh, in which we are often encouraged to side with the rebellious guy who's often a bit of a loose cannon who uh, bends the rules just to, um, yeah, do what needs to be done. Um, another classic example of that is the Fast and Furious, um, in which we have Dominic Toretto, who is a bit of a bad guy, um, to be honest, and uh, we seem to be good we, uh, as we want him to be, um, as he's a rebellious person, because all he's doing this is to protect his family. But he's still breaking the rules. He's still breaking the law. And it's because society, we love a good rebel. And people often like to see themselves as being a bit of a rebel themselves. And we can see this idolization of uh, different rebels throughout our history. You can think about um, more recently in Australian history, uh, you can look at the Ned Kelly gang, in which um, these people were murderous and thieves, yet we celebrate them and honour them because they stood up against the law. You could also look at the history of the War of Independence. You can look at the French Revolution, which saw thousands of people die in the name of freedom and liberty. Particularly with the French Revolution, the liberators ended up executing lots and lots of people to the point in which the sewers were overflowing with blood. 
We also see this in our myths and our legends. You can think about Robin Hood. You can think about uh, the Aladdin from the Middle East. Or you can think about the 47 Ronin from Japan. Society loves a good rebel. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that uh, these stories or historical events were bad. um, Because in most cases... The rebels were fighting against oppression and standing up for justice. What I'm wanting us to get at and take note of is that rebellion has long been seen as a great virtue in humanity. And this stems from rebellion being a part of human nature. We see this when a child comes to age and they start rebelling against their parents and those who have authority over them. The rebellious nature of humanity is a prevalent theme throughout the Bible. Even God's own chosen people, the Israelites, constantly and openly rebelled against their own God. There is a long history of this rebellion which stems all the way back to creation. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of good and evil and they allowed sin to enter the world. What did they do? They rebelled against God's commandment. He only had one commandment. And in doing so, they established a history of continued rebellion in humanity. Now, this is where we enter into Psalm 2. In the first three verses of the psalm, we see the rebellious nature of humanity. And they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, when the psalm refers to the nations, or the peoples, or the kings, it is referring to all those who weren't a part of God's chosen people, who were the Israelites. And at the time, the Israelites were surrounded by foreign nations, with foreign gods, who were constantly rebelling against the one true God. Great mighty empires like the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, constantly attacking each other. And you could see and feel a great sense of rage in this region, which was often directed towards the Israelites themselves, and often directed towards the Lord God Almighty. Now, the psalm opens with a simple question. Why? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The question is a rhetorical question, as the psalmist knows exactly why they do it. And in verse 3, we read that the peoples are looking for some form of freedom. They believe that they themselves can rule the earth, they don't need a God. They believe they are powerful enough to break their bonds that God has over them. Now, when I read these verses, I immediately get this uh, picture of a tiny little kitten with his paws up, ready to fight in a pouncing stance, ready to fight a mighty lion. I always assume, and I think, that's never going to happen. What on earth are you doing? You should just really sit down before you get yourself hurt. And we actually see this attitude in the psalm. You see, in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. So what does God do? He laughs at these rebels. So what is the psalmist really asking when they state the question, why? The question is more of a statement like, what is wrong with you? Are you insane? Do you not realize that you are going up against the Lord God Almighty, maker and creator of the universe? You could say that the psalmist thinks these people have a few loose screws, screws loose in their head. So how does God respond to these rebels? Then? Well, after his chuckle, he states in verse 6 that he has set a king on Zion. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's almost as if God is saying, you think you're powerful enough or wise enough to rule the earth? Well, actually, I'm going to establish a king to rule over you. And then we read in verse 7, God declaring that the king will be his son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And furthermore, in verse 8, we read that the nations will be the king's inheritance. And that this king will possess the ends of the earth. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So God responds to the rebellious nature of humanity by establishing his son as king. Which now leads to the question, who is the son? Now, the son, according to the psalm, is the holy king that God anoints. Uh, By being anointed king, the son is therefore also appointed the judge. The blessed righteous man referred to in the first psalm is also fulfilled in the son and king of the second psalm. In verse 2, the psalm talks about his anointed one. Now, the term anointed one translates to either the Messiah or to Christ. The original hearers of the psalm were expecting a king to come and rule over the people and make Israel a mighty nation. They were looking for a warrior king who would break the surrounding nations with a rod and dash them to pieces. The original hearers didn't think that they were part of the rebellious people mentioned in the psalm because they knew that they were part of God's chosen people. They were the Israelites. Now, the psalm doesn't specifically say or name who the son is. It only states what the son will do. And to discover the identity of the son, we actually must turn to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, instead of a warrior king that will lead Israel to rule over the surrounding nation, God establishes a servant king. One who conquers sin and the rebellious nature of humanity by laying down his life for them. 
Instead of one nation ruling over all the others, we see a new people derived from all nations. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is the Son mentioned in Psalm 2. And we can read this specifically in um, Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, where a voice came from heaven saying to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And again, we see this later on in Matthew 17 at Jesus' transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is a Son referred to in Psalm 2. He is the Anointed One. He is the King that will inherit the nations and possess the ends of the earth. Jesus is the one whom we should take refuge in. But what does this actually mean? What does Jesus being the Son actually mean for us? It means that he will judge his heritage, his inheritance, his possession. And we can see this in verse 9, that the Son will deal with the rebellious by disciplining them. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The rebellious shall perish in the son's anger as he unleashes his wrath. Jesus is established as the righteous judge who delights in the law mentioned in the first psalm. Jesus will rule over and judge the nations. Anyone who doesn't kiss him, and by kiss him it means to pay homage or uh, give you absolute undivided loyalty to, or anyone who doesn't take refuge in him will experience his anger, his wrath, and perish. But the psalm amongst all this pending judgment and doom and gloom provides We read in verse 10 that this psalm is actually a warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. The psalm is calling for those who are rebelling against God to instead serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. God doesn't hate the rebels. He loves them. That's why he's offering them salvation. For those that put their hope and take refuge in Jesus will stay his anger and will not perish with the rebellious. And if you're listening to this psalm and haven't put your hope in the Son, I put forward the same question that the psalmist did at the beginning. Why? What is the image that you immediately get when you think about God? Is that what's holding you back? Most people would think purely of the doom and gloom mentioned in the psalm. That God is just an angry God that loves smiting people whenever he pleases. 
And yes, there will be a day of judgment. However, God doesn't hate you. He wants you to come into his glory and recognize his son, Jesus, as king. He wants you to receive his blessing. That is why the psalm is written. So that you will take heed of his warning and take refuge in his son. Serve the king so that when the day of judgment arrives and the kingdom is at hand, then you will not perish with the rest of the rebellious. Remember that Jesus came as a servant king, not a warrior king. He wants you to embrace him. He wants you to come into his glory. Therefore, be wise, be warned. And if you'd like to make a commitment or know more about Jesus, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to answer any of your questions. Uh, You can contact us via our Connect card or send us an email. Um, We'll also be answering questions at the 5.30 service if you want to come along to that and send us a message that way as well. Now, for those that already put their hope in Jesus, how great and powerful is the Lord? How blessed are we to be able to take refuge in him? I'd like to remind you to continue to rely upon him, especially when things are tough and you feel like rebelling against his will. Continue to serve the Lord and rejoice in his mightiness. Rejoice in the fact that you'll be spared his wrath. You are no longer part of the rebellious. You are part of the kingdom, the kingdom that serves the anointed king, the son, Jesus Christ, who will inherit the nations and possess the ends of the earth. Now, I don't want us to get an us versus them sort of mentality from what I've been saying today, uh, because that's not what the passage is suggesting at all. Instead, the passage is wanting and calling all the rebels to recognize God's Son, Jesus, to make a commitment to Him. Ultimately, it's calling them to become a Christian. And if God can show such great love and mercy to these rebels... So can we, and so should we. As God's people, we shouldn't hate the rebel. Rather, you should see them as someone needing help, someone to share salvation with, someone to share Christ with. Let me pray. Father God, we give you thanks for today, for the ability to come together to look at your word, even if it is online. Uh, We give you thanks for the psalm, for the warning that you've given us. We give you thanks that you have anointed your son to be king, to inherit the nations and to rule over us. We pray that you continue to guide us in this knowledge and that we'll be able to put your will for our lives into action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.